This morning, we're finishing our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. As we've seen, Peter is writing this letter to a group of Christians whose situation wasn't terribly unlike our own today in the West. They were increasingly being misunderstood. They were increasingly being mistreated and maligned. And their allegiance to Christ was placing them further and further and further on the fringes of respectable society. Now, if we use this letter as a sort of angled mirror to glimpse at what was going on in these churches, it's safe to say that these small groups of believers in ancient Turkey must have been very concerned that the persecution, which was now increasing, meant that they were on the wrong road, that they had somewhere taken a wrong turn, that they had given their allegiance to Jesus as a false Messiah. Otherwise, why would these things still be happening? But in these final verses, Peter clears things up for us. He invites us to view our conflict, not ultimately as a product of a society changing its values, but ultimately as a product of the cosmic battle between the Lord and the spiritual forces of darkness. Look with me at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, why would Peter say this to us? It really is an odd way to end an encouraging letter. Oh, and by the way, watch out for the devil. <laughs> and yet, the extent to which... So the first service laughed a lot more at this. <laughs> so you guys are actually in the clear here because the extent to which we laugh at this is the extent to which the devil may already be getting a foothold in our own cultures and possibility structures. You see, 200 years ago, when many Western countries took a decisive move towards democracy, this was sometimes, not always, but sometimes accompanied by a resolute dismissal of God, of public religion, from the civic and social stage. We were the masters now. But the danger with that, as we've seen throughout the last two centuries, is that once you get rid of God, you also get rid of the devil. And then what happens is you yourself and your friends or your party or your country take on the role of God. And guess who takes on the role of the devil? Everyone else who's opposed to you. And that leads to total disaster. Peter steers us away from all of this 
by pointing out our real enemy, the devil himself, whom he describes here not as a sly, sneaky serpent who wants to trick us, as in Genesis chapter 3, but as an angry, roaring lion who wants to terrify us and devour us whole, faith and all. After all, the essential aim of Roman torture was to make apostates, not martyrs. That's one less person paying taxes. And so Peter instructs us in verse 9 to resist the devil. How? By standing firm in your faith. And then again at the end of verse 12, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that's our response to persecution. That's the strategy we have to learn to use against the devil if we're going to hold on to our faith and to our sanity in an increasingly hostile world. We are to stand firm. Now, what exactly does that mean? Uh, To stand firm in our faith, to hold the line. What does it look like for us to do that? That's what I'd like uh, for us to see with a bit more clarity this morning. Peter gives us four ways to stand firm in our faith against the devil. So four ways to stand firm in our faith against the devil. First way is by following our Christian leaders. Peter says in verse 5, be subject to the elders. Now in one sense, there's no denying it. This is about submission to religious authority. It's about obeying your elders, some of which aren't that elderly. Just say that. (laughs) Obeying your pastors. It's about following and paying attention to our teaching. It's about trusting us, having a posture of trust, and listening to our guidance, knowing that we could be wrong. And yet, Peter's tone is hardly authoritarian. He frames the whole conversation around the pastor's role as a gentle shepherd. In verse 2, he tells pastors to shepherd the flock of God. In verse 3, to be examples to the flock. And in verse 4, to serve like Jesus, the chief shepherd. So why does Peter insist that we follow our Christian leaders? It's because the sheep are safest with the shepherd. Think about it. If the devil is a lion on the prowl, Which animal of the herd does he most readily attack? It's the one that's isolated. It's the one that's fallen behind. It's the one that's gone its own way. It's the one that's ignored the leader or the movements of the herd. Peter's saying, stick with the leader, stick with the herd. But this goes against the grain of what so many of us have learned growing up in the West. We Westerners are allergic to conformity. All our lives we're told to be ourselves, to be different, 
to not follow the crowd, to find our own way, to be independent. In some ways, these American mottos have served us well. We can think of a particular time, 1776. But when it comes to religion, we've lacked the wisdom to know where to draw the line. Independence, it might be a sign of power in our own day, but in pre-modern times and in the wild, to be independent, that was, an, that was a debilitating sign of weakness, of youthfulness, of stubbornness, of foolishness. I wonder, how is the lion roaring in your life right now? Do you sense that there are significant parts of your faith that he's wanting to devour? Is he starting to scare you? To get to you? To intimidate you? This is real. It's the wild. And the best chance you have of surviving the devil's attack is to stick with the herd and follow the leader. But you know, this is just as much an instruction for Aubrey and me as it is for you. We're not CEOs. You should be thankful for that. We're servants. We're supposed to be servants. You know, that's what this collar means. It's not supposed to be cool. And it really isn't. In, in either sense of the word. You know, underneath this, the brand is called Claricool Collar. And it, they just missed it, didn't they? They just missed it. It's not supposed to be some elitist status symbol. It symbolizes slavery. Slavery to God. Slavery to you as your servants. doesn't mean we don't have authority. It just means we're supposed to lead in a different way. So we're your pastors. We're your shepherds. We're your servants. So please follow us. Let us watch out for you and care for you and pray for us. Nobody's good enough for this job. But we really want to do it well. We want to be good shepherds. And we want to be like our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. So that's the first way to stand firm. It's to follow our Christian leaders. Now let's look at a second way. And that's by accepting our humble status. Look with me at verse 6, the beginning of that second paragraph. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, when Peter tells these Christians to humble themselves, he's not implying that they've somehow become arrogant along the way. Their self-esteem was at an all-time low. No, when Peter tells these Christians to humble themselves, he's urging them to accept this humble status, to really own it. So just like Jesus took the form of a servant, just as he refused to walk with an air of entitlement or to advertise his victim status or to protest his exclusion from the boardroom table, so we are to accept our suffering as a sign, oddly enough, of God's love and favor. And when we're upset, there's no need to vent our anger and frustration like people who are surprised at being treated unjustly, unfairly. 
We are not the moral majority. I'm not sure we ever were. Or even that a majority rule can somehow reintroduce a genuine biblical morality back into public life. It's just not how the kingdom of God works. Jesus was clear that his kingdom grows slowly but surely through suffering and love. If there's any slogan that describes us now, it's the immoral minority. We're the lonely nay vote on the city board. We're the teenager who stopped being invited to the fun house parties. We're the scapegoat for the backwardness of the city or the neighborhood or the company. This opposition, it's not something that we can avoid by modifying our behavior or adapting our beliefs to escape it. Again, our conflict is not ultimately a product of a society changing its values. Behind all of it is our enemy, the lion who wants to devour us. Only by completely abandoning the gospel and the community shaped by it, only by submitting to the satanic forces that stand in total opposition to God, can we escape these persecutions. So again, the goal of Roman persecution in this time was not to make martyrs. Because martyrdom makes an idea immortal. (laughs) They wanted to make apostates. They wanted to make them weak in the face of suffering. This has always been Christianity. It just hasn't been our experience of it. At the center of our faith has always been the cross. And some of us have worn it around our necks. Some of us have made it over our bodies as we worship on Sunday mornings. And yet now we must accept it for ourselves like Jesus did. And he'll help us carry it. He'll even do a majority of the, lift, of the lifting. Sometimes he'll even carry it completely for us. But we have to accept it. Whatever it is for us. Loss of friends. Some of you teenagers are experiencing this. Loss of status. Loss of property. That's what the Anglican church here in America has been going through. It's a great privilege to live like Jesus. And we get to do it just for a little while. And then glory forever. So accept your humble status. And let God exalt you. Third. Stand firm in our faith. By looking to other Christians who have suffered Look now at verse 9. We've kind of come back to where we've started. Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So it's interesting, the word experienced here is actually the Greek word epitelesthai, which means to be completed or fulfilled. And Peter's point here is actually pretty simple. If our suffering were isolated if we were the only ones being persecuted and marginalized because of our faith, then we could blame a local enemy, a judge, a governor, a people, a person. But since this suffering is ubiquitous and pervasive, 
since Christians all over the world in all times and places are going through this same conflict, then we can know that our enemy is bigger than any one person. That this persecution is not happening because of something you did or didn't do. That it's actually part of this cataclysmic battle between good and evil, between God and evil. The world isn't spinning out of control. God's got this. It won't last forever. And it won't be purposeless. Things will change decisively and finally. But until then, we are to hold our bit of the line while our Christian brothers and sisters across the world are holding theirs. We're on a different front, you see. And if we do that, if we do that, we'll find that courteous and civil behavior, that acting with respect and gentleness, will again and again win an answering respect from outsiders, even if they still don't understand what makes you tick. You know, this is where our African brothers and sisters can really help us. One of the beautiful things about Anglicanism, uh, if you're new with this, is our deep-seated connectedness with Christians all around the world. There's some 85 million Anglican Christians in the world. A very large portion of those are in Africa holding the line against unspeakable persecutions with no money, with no facilities, and learning ahead of us what it means to actually resist the devil who has crept his way into institutions, into schools, into governments. So many of these Christians are being displaced in exile that they're even showing up on our doorstep here in Harrisonburg. There's an African congregation that meets in our building on Sunday afternoons. Does that mean we're helping them? Or does it mean that they're helping us? So pray for them and learn from them. Get to know them. Make it a point of yours next year for 2019 to worship with them in the afternoon at least one time. I don't know the language. <laughs> Do you realize? You realize that when Bishop Ondudu sits back and looks at you like this, he's not mad at you? <laughs> he's new to the language. And they're having to go through this and they're ahead of us. So let's learn from them. Because sooner or later, if history is any indicator, we'll be in a very similar place. All right, so now the picture is falling into place. The devil will try to swallow us whole with persecution and other attacks. And if that isn't working, he'll try to tempt us to live in ways that destroy our faith and our humanity. And this will go on for a while. And it will be really hard. But ultimately, these fiery trials will make us all the better. It will do for us what fire does to silver and gold. It will consume our imperfections, our weaknesses, our fears, and make the true metal of our faith shine all the more brightly. 
that leads us to the fourth and final way, to stand firm in our faith. Peter says in verses 10 and 11, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's by longing for the final act of God. Longing for it. Peter invites us to have this forward-looking faith. Christianity has no room for nostalgia. There was no golden age of Christianity in the 1950s or in the first century AD or even in the Garden of Eden for that matter. Faith has always been about hoping and waiting for God to do something new and fresh and good in the world despite the way things appear. Faith is about longing for the future reign of God. We lose sight of that when we think we're living in a utopia. Some of you have suffered profoundly. You've suffered with cancer. You've suffered the loss of a spouse or the failure of a marriage. You've suffered a debilitating disease or handicap. And when you're suffering, you get this clarity on just how wonderful it might be when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom once and for all on earth as it is in heaven. It's that faith, that forward-looking faith that helps us to stand firm in the midst of persecution. One of the most stunning stories in church history is the martyrdom of St. Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch in the early 2nd century. But around the year 107, he was arrested on the charge of atheism, which was code for refusing to worship the Roman gods. He was condemned to death and transported to Rome, where his execution in the Colosseum would entertain the thousands of pilgrims who had come to Rome to celebrate a recent military victory. On the way to Rome, Ignatius wrote letters to, to several churches. But the most significant of these letters was the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. The same church, we presume, that Paul wrote his letter to. Somehow, Ignatius had heard that the Christians in Rome, who were a very capable bunch, were making plans to rescue him. And yet, this is what he wrote to them. I fear your kindness, which may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan, but if you pay no heed to my request, it will be very difficult for me to attain to God. As the letter went on, Ignatius said that his life goal was to imitate the Lord Jesus in death. Now I begin to be a disciple, he says. Now I begin to be a disciple. I wish to taste the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. In his blood I wish to drink, which is an immortal drink. When I suffer, I shall be free in Jesus Christ, and with him shall rise again in freedom. I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts, so that I may be offered as pure bread of Christ. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones and dismemberment come upon me 
so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. So I'm sure reluctantly, but the Christians in Rome granted his request. They did not interfere with his execution. And St. Ignatius died just as he envisioned. He was fed to the lion with the name Jesus repeated incessantly on his lips. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to imagine having a faith like that. But for Ignatius, it made perfect sense. You know, tradition says that Ignatius was discipled by the Apostle John, the disciple of Jesus who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. So for years, Ignatius would have listened with wide-eyed wonder to John's stories about Jesus' life and ministry and his plan to come back and restore everything. It was this whole idea of resurrection, resurrection of the physical body, resurrection, resurrection of the whole world that kept Ignatius faithful. Christians get everything back. Whatever we give up, whatever we lose, whatever's taken away from us, we get it back a hundred times over. As theologian Jonathan Edwards has said, our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. That's the fuel for standing firm. It's a deep-seated hope on the God who makes all things new. On the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And on the God who stays with you in your trials, through the heat of it, restoring you, confirming you, strengthening you, and establishing you. As we enter next week into Advent, let's fix our eyes on Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.